So I'll start off with a question, if I can, uh, and, and maybe set it up for just uh, 30 seconds or so, uh, which hopefully everyone won't do. Um, so here's the setup. Uh, Jesus is a friend of sinners, uh, but he's a friend of sinners who speaks truth. He doesn't just hang out with sinners. Being a friend of sinners is hanging out with sinners, eating with them, enjoying them, showing love to them, um, and yet also so much more. And, and Jesus seems to get to gospel, truth, uh, and even appeal, you know, be reconciled to God, like Paul says in Second Corinthians 5, uh, so much faster than, than I do. <laughs> Uh, I think that there's been times in my life where non-Christians have been in my life for years and I've missed opportunities to um, to move to that next stage. I actually wrote down different stages that I could think of. Uh, acquaintances, friendships, um, sharing life, doing things together with uh, non-Christians, talking about important life things, maybe someone died in the family, talking about spiritual things, actually getting to the gospel and communicating substitution and all that, and then even a, a sixth stage here of making an appeal. So can you give us some advice on yes. navigating through those waters of moving to the next stage, mm. not being too hasty, not being too patient, too lazy? Mm. Uh, maybe even give us a, a story of okay. when you've moved boldly to the next stage and you knew it would have been, you thought maybe it would have been sin to wait. Yeah, great. That's a wonderful question. Um, you got about an hour and a half. <laughs> that's, uh, yeah, that's a great question. Um, uh, Ryan says yeah, Jesus you know, appears to get to the question and to the challenge and to the truth very quickly. In this example, he certainly does. Uh, not always. Not always. There are quite a few examples in the Gospels where Jesus isn't able to get there because the person isn't ready yet to hear. And if you, I'm not, I don't like promoting my own books, but if you read Learning Evangelism from Jesus, you'll see several examples of that there. What Jesus tries to do is to move somebody along. And, and, he does that in all kinds of ways. And really, that should be our desire. We, we, we cannot force people to listen to an appeal to come to faith in Christ. You can't force people to discuss the truth. And you, your, your, first, your first issue is prayer, praying for people. We, we pray for people. If you've got family members or friends who are not Christians and who are completely uninterested, if you try to force the issue, you know, if you do this at work, for example, if every day you go to get a cup of coffee and the person you meet at the coffee pot in your office, you try to have a gospel conversation with them and you know, every, nobody will ever be at the coffee pot with you. That's what will happen. You know, that they will avoid you like the plague. That, that is what is going to happen. So you pray. You pray that the Lord will have his hand over your life, that he will open the doors into people's hearts and minds which you cannot open. 
and you pray that then you will be intentional. You pray for yourself. Lord, help me to be intentional in my relationships and, and do what I can first to build a relationship and then to move the person forward. Let me, let me tell a story because that will help here. I'll be, Vicky and I, Lord willing, are going to England next week to look after my mother. We're flying on Tuesday. And we're just going to be there for two and a half weeks. And then I have to get back for the next semester, which starts at the end of August. Uh, but while we're there, you know, I used to be a pastor there for 18 years, and so there are lots of people who would like to see us. But there's one person I'm going to see, even if I don't see anybody else, who is not a Christian. That's the one I'm going to be utterly intentional about. Indeed, we're already setting it up by email. And his wife became a Christian in our church 38 years ago. She's one of my wife's closest friends. But he was utterly hostile to the gospel. Completely hostile. He, he forbade his wife to come to church. He forbade her to teach their children the faith. No, he didn't want to have anything to do with us. He was just very angry when she became a Christian. And you know, she had to say to him, well, darling, you know, I'll obey you anywhere I can, but you know, I am going to go to church. I am a Christian. I'm sorry you don't like it, but that's it, and I'm going to teach the children, but I'll only do it when you're not here. And so she was very wise about it. And she just hung in there, and she prayed for him, and she loved him, and we prayed for her, and she needed lots of support and encouragement. And of course, we prayed for him. And we've, I've been praying for that guy for 38 years since his wife became a Christian. And, you know, I could never get to meet him. He didn't want to meet me. I mean, I was her pastor, so I, I was the last person on earth he wanted to meet. For me, for him, I was the cause of the problems in his marriage, that he had this religious wife. Well, about, I suppose it was five or six years ago, a turning point came. You know, we go back, we've been in St. Louis now for 24 years, so we go back every year, and now my mother's very elderly to care for her, see our son who lives there and our grandchildren and, and my brother and so on. And uh, oh, his wife said to him, oh, Jeremy and Vicky are going to be here. Do you think we could have them over for lunch? He's retired now. He's a banker. He's retired. And uh, so very ungraciously, he said, okay, I guess so, if you insist. Uh, and uh, she just took courage and she made us lunch. They, they have this little farm where now they're retired and they grow. They, she breeds lambs and he does the tractor work and stuff. And, and so we had their roast lamb. And he was extremely nervous on that first occasion and not very friendly. Uh, and he... He drank a bit too much, and uh, very nice wine he had. And, uh, and, but basically, we got on much better than he expected. And uh, so the next year, we were back in England again, and, and 
She said to him, do you think we could have Jeremy and Vicky for lunch again? He said, oh, yeah, I like the guy. So uh, then we started to, to really be able to talk. And I just you know, prayed, Lord, help me to have the courage to say what I can say. But first, help me just to get to know this man, to love him. And to build a relationship here. And this issue of testimony, you know, where are God's testimonies in his life? Well, in, in his case, he's very wise about finances. You know, he was a banker for many years. And in, one, in this conversation, you know, he predicted the recession which we're now living in. Long before anybody was talking about it in the press or experts, he predicted exactly what was going to happen in great detail and why because of the foolish decisions made by our governments and by our banks and mortgage companies. And it was just fascinating. And this is the area of truth, of knowledge, of wisdom in his life. You know, I'm completely ignorant about economics, but he's very wise and very thoughtful. And so that, that was where we began to talk. And you know, then you, you pray, Lord, let, we need to move this further. When can we move from this thing that is wise and good in his life to, to really beginning to touch his heart? And we've been having this discussion where he was attacking what was happening in the banking and mortgage company and the foolish decisions by both the British and U.S. government and many other governments which have read, led to our present crisis. Uh, and he was speaking about it with tremendous moral passion about the folly and immorality of these decisions by bankers and politicians. And then we changed the subject. We were talking about something else. And then he just said, a typical kind of comment, you know, everything's relative, isn't it? And I just looked at him. I thought, Here, here's a moment. You have to say something. And I said, brother, You're no relativist. You just think of the moral passion with which you've been speaking about the folly of, of the decisions made with regard to finances and international trade and so on. And he said, you're right, I'm no relativist. Uh, we will never have that discussion again. You know, I said it with a smile, you, you don't attack people. It's not helpful. There's a very profound thing. And then a little later in this discussion, he suddenly said, because he, this obviously had stuck in his heart, you know, I have moral passion, I'm not a relativist. And then he suddenly said, you know, as a banker, I did things of which I'm ashamed because he'd just been attacking the folly and wickedness of bankers. He said, as a banker myself, I did things of which I'm deeply ashamed and I'm going to have to carry them to the grave. Well, you know, and you think, Lord, here you've been praying to talk to this guy, you know, here's a moment. I just said, well, you don't have to. That's exactly why Jesus died. So you don't have to carry your shame to the grave and your failures. And he said, that's, that's too easy. 
I said, no, it isn't. It was a hard, it was unbelievably hard for Jesus. And I talked a little bit about, a bit about that, about him bearing the wrath of God. And it would be the hardest thing you ever do in your life to acknowledge this. And he, he looked at me and he said, you know, and, I, and then I said, well, you know, you're going to become a Christian one day. And he, and he looked at me and I, and I laughed when I said it, you know, because you've got to add a bit of, a bit of, release the tension a little bit in conversations <laughs> like this. And he said, it'll take a Damascus Road experience. And I thought, this guy's reading the New Testament. <laughs> it was the first biblical comment he'd ever made in his life, I'm sure. And I said, no, it won't. You'll be just like C.S. Lewis, who said, finally, I was dragged the most reluctant convert into the kingdom. And he, he said, kicking and screaming. I said, yeah, brother, that's you exactly. You know, this is a hard thing to do. Now, when we left that day, and now when we go, we stay for five or six hours and he doesn't want us to go. He just longs to talk. I think I'm probably the first real friend he's ever had. He's not an easy man. He wasn't an easy man to be married to. When I left that day, I said to him, you know, if I'm pushing you too hard, please tell me to back off. And he said, no, I love it. <laughs> you, 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 you've got to give people, as well as pushing them, you give them an out. Now, I, I would say in, in all your relationships, you know, that's taken 38 years to get to that point. I think when he does come to faith, it'll be even harder for him to tell his wife than to bow before the Lord. You've been right all these years, and I was wrong. You know, men find that difficult. <laughs> we do. Yeah. But that's what's, that, he's going to find that difficult. I sometimes think when he says, I, amen, when his wife asks me to pray, that uh, he's already come to faith in his heart, and he just won't tell her. But, uh, but he's moving. But he's the person I'm going to go see next week when we go to England. I probably won't see anybody else, but I will see him. And uh, we have to be intentional about these things. Jesus is intentional about where he goes. This is what the Father desires for us to do. There are many things we could do in our life which we would enjoy doing, and it's perfectly fine to enjoy those things. But most of my time, of course, I'm going to be taking care of my mom. But uh, we need to be intentional we need to pray. And sometimes, of course, it's the first time you talk to somebody, just like with Jesus and the Samaritan woman. You know, they want to talk right there and then. You know, God has opened their heart. It's not because you're so good at anything. That's not the issue. Your God is at work saving people. That's his passion. And he calls us to be faithful. Faithful in our relationships. So with family members, with, with friends, with neighbors, with colleagues with fellow students, you know, in whatever setting, first pray, then give yourself the relationship, secondly. And then thirdly, be intentional. 
and look for openings. And when you find them, be prepared to push. And if the person resists, back off. You don't have to be in a hurry because the Lord can save them. You can't. Remember what Jesus said. This was in response to to Peter after Jesus had a discussion with that wealthy young man. And Jesus spoke about how hard it is for the wealthy to be saved. And Peter asked about it. And Jesus' response was, with men this is impossible. But with God all things are possible. I can't save anybody. I can't save my friend back in England. I can't save my new sister who I didn't know existed till a year ago. I can't save that guy I spoke to in the Christchurch airport about the the ultimate destruction of the universe. But God can. That's our confidence. We don't have to save anybody, but he does call us to be faithful, to be obedient to him. I'll be in trouble if... uh... My question's the only one that you answer, so let's uh, let's move along here. That's my fault. I'm lightning not good round. at giving let's, short answers. Let's pretend answers, it's lightning so. round. Okay. okay, so you mentioned the pool party and the pastor's wife, and I just yes. have to take that up. And I'm really, really glad that you brought up uh, 1 Corinthians 5, because that's where I wanted to go mm-hmm. right away. Um, so what about the, the, let's call them strumpets in our congregations that wear worse costumes than the unbelievers. Uh, what's the pastor's wife and the party to say to them? Okay. Well, let's, let's just be, let's be careful here, okay? Um, yeah, obviously, our calling is, is to teach our children to honor God in their dress and in their speech, and in their, in their way of life. But we, we, we have to be careful with them. The, the most rebellious people I ever meet are those who've grown up in the most legalistic homes. where their parents are so committed to the outward appearance of purity and modesty and holiness that they overwhelm their kids with rules about how long their skirt can be, about what to do with their hair, etc., etc. And I would just plead with you When you teach your children, you teach them God's commandments so that they fall in love with purity and chastity and fidelity. And pray for that for them and give them an example of that. you can say all you like to your kids about modesty and purity, but if you've got wandering eyes yourself, they will see it. If you treat your wife or your husband poorly, they will see it. 
you know, why my father is my example of marriage to me is because you know, here as a non-Christian, we were very poor. We had a tiny home. We heard every word day and night in that house. And I never heard him speak an unkind or disrespectful or ungracious word to my mother in my life. I never saw him look at another woman with lustful eyes. You know, he's my model of what it means to be a husband. So you know, first you set an example of purity yourself and of modesty and fidelity. And then you teach God's commandments as something beautiful, beautiful to fall in love with. So your children fall in love with the idea of modesty and purity and fidelity. But rules won't help you in that task. The Apostle Paul says this, the rules we adopt what to eat, what to wear, what to, et cetera, et cetera, have absolutely no value in restraining the indulgence of the sinful nature. This is why Jesus attacks the Pharisees and teachers of the law so passionately. He attacks them much more passionately than he attacks anybody else because they put a burden of rules on people. So even with your own children, the rules won't help you. So... They won't help the kids fall in love with purity or with dressing modestly. Your example and your teaching well and your passionate prayer that the Lord will will do his work in their hearts so that they love him and therefore they love his commandments. But if they go through a patch where they want to wear short dresses and they want to do this and they want to do that, and they start running with the wrong crowd, don't judge them. Don't reject them. Just keep loving them. Keep praying for them. Hang in there with them. Think of the parable of the prodigal son. The son does everything wrong. He wishes his father were dead. He wants his inheritance while his father's still alive. He goes off and he spends it in wild living. Uh, But you don't hear a single word of criticism from his father to him ever. You just hear love and grace. And it's challenging. I mean, I, I had three sons growing up in this cultural setting. It's challenging. But God calls us to patience and grace. And yeah, you try to teach the truth and you model the truth. But it's going to mean lots of forgiveness. God is the perfect father and he only has prodigal children. We have all been prodigals before God. We we must be gentle and gracious and imitate his, his prodigal love. 
with our children. And it means closing your eyes to certain things. Choose your battles wisely. Don't have battles with them that are unnecessary. Because you drive them away. Choose them wisely. And just hang in there when they go through difficult patches. One of my sons went through a patch where he didn't want to hear me preach. He was embarrassed what I did by among his friends. And you just you just hang in there patiently. He apologized eventually for that to me. And I said, you have nothing to apologize for. I, I, I never stopped loving you. That son said to me one day, he was about 14, you know, 14-year-olds can be challenging. And he said to me, Dad, what do you have against me? And it cut me to the heart. I, I will never forget it. And he, he was going through a difficult patch at the time. And I, I said to him, son, I have nothing against you. I am so sorry that I communicated that to you. Please forgive me. I'm absolutely mortified that you would have ever got that impression. So don't push them. Don't hedge them around. Give them the grace that God shows to you every day. You think how patient the Lord is with you. You're sinning all the time and he doesn't rebuke you. He doesn't attack you. He doesn't get at you. He doesn't head you around. He's incredibly gracious and patient. And that's the way we are to be as parents. You know, we speak the truth as we can. But, you know, hang in there. Thanks. I don't mean this to be a challenge. It's more of a... I don't mind if you do challenge me. That's fine. (laughs) Well, I don't think it's for you in in that sense, but I'm trying to make sense of something that we do with the Lord's Supper, not just at this church, but at many churches I've attended throughout my lifetime. We talk so much about the Lord sitting and eating with sinners and when, uh, when the Lord calls a non-Christian to the Lord's Supper service, and then we ask them not to partake, I don't understand that. Hmm. Okay. Well, that's, a, that's a very good question. Um, obviously, there's a distinction between sitting down and eating a meal together, so... In the early church, the Lord's Supper was usually in the context of a meal together. And in that context, you might have many unbelievers present who are sitting and eating and drinking at the table with you in imitation of the example of Christ. In the church where I was a pastor, we would often, we would often do that. We would have, you know, at harvest, at Christmas... Thanksgiving, Easter, we would have a big meal where we would invite all our friends. 
And then in the middle of that meal, we would have the Lord's Supper. But the, the New Testament requires us, when we have the Lord's Supper, to declare what it means. Paul says, whenever you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Yet we don't have a bare sacrament. We have a washing of water in baptism with the word. And in the Lord's Supper, we, we talk about what it means, and the New Testament requires us to. And the meaning of the Lord's Supper is not simply Christ eating with sinners, but Christ inviting to his table those who have put their trust in him, those who recognize they are sinners and they need his mercy and grace for forgiveness. And that is why in any church you will hear the Lord's Supper fenced is the word that's used, where we always say, if you haven't yet come to faith in Jesus, please pass the bread and the cup by. You know, please don't feel uncomfortable. You want, want to, always want to say something like that. You know, this isn't a judgment of you. But the Lord's Supper, not eating together with unbelievers, but the Lord's Supper is an occasion for those who have put their trust in Christ, who are celebrating that in that setting. But that's why we fence the table. Does that help? Okay. Right, let's do one more question and then we'll wrap this up. Here you go, Dan. Yeah, you had commented about your uh, sons and um, how you raised them and, and they're successful. They have, uh, you have nine grandkids now. Nine, yes. Could you, or, yeah. Could you also comment about praying for them? Did you have an intentional time that you prayed for them and with them? Yes, indeed. Um, I certain, we certainly did. I mean, you. at first we couldn't have children at all, so we started praying for children. Uh, uh, and then once, once we, we, we did start having kids, um, then, of course, you pray for them. Not as much as we should. None of us pray as much as we ought to. But, but uh, yeah, I, I pray for my kids. I still do. I have three sons who are... 39, 38, and 36. And I try to remember to pray for them every day. I don't always remember, but I try to remember. Whenever I think about them, to pray for them. Um, and I would say they're my closest friends, and that's what you, you pray for, that you'll be able to stay close to them all through their life. And uh, your friend, and I'm still their dad, of course, um, much to my amazement, they still ask me for advice about things. More, certainly more than they did as teenagers. And, uh, uh, but uh, that's, that's quite natural because you know, kids go through a patch where they find their own place in the world. And you encourage that. You encourage them to start making decisions and to make their own choices, to develop their own life. And you've got to do that long before they leave home. Because when they go off to college... They'll be by themselves anyway. So long before they go, you want them started making decisions themselves rather than saying, you've got to be back by 9 o'clock in the evening. I mean, nobody's telling them that in college. They need to know how to handle life and time and decisions and sexuality and many other things long before they leave for college. So you encourage them into maturity. But you pray for them. And sometimes you pray desperately and anxiously, you know, Lord, protect them. And uh, 
you know, in these challenging situations into which they're going. And that's, of course, what Jesus prays in John 17, that the Father will protect them as they go out into the world. So you pray for them and you pray with them. You know, we try to pray with the boys every night. I would read to them you know, passages from Scripture, but also many other things. I read an hour of Tolkien a night to them or the Lord of the Rings, or whatever it happened to be at the time, and, uh, and then pray with them when we put them to bed. And uh, So you, you just hang in there. And, uh, and now we pray for our grandchildren. But you, we still pray for our three sons, of course. They're still my sons, even though they're fine young men with their own families. Yeah. But God, because God can do what we can't. And that's true whether they're two years old or 39. Thanks so much, Jerem. I'm sure you. many of us would, uh, would enjoy much longer with uh, Q&A, um, but uh, we want to be sensitive to schedules that you might have. So we'll, uh, we'll unfortunately have to wrap this up. Uh, Jerem will be preaching for us tomorrow morning in our two services, 9 and 1045. So uh, if you don't have a place to go or you're from DSC, we'd love to see you tomorrow morning. Uh, preaching on Ruth 3, is that right? That's right. Okay, we'll look forward to that. Let me just close. I want to read the book of Ruth before tomorrow morning. That would help yeah. greatly. It's short. Okay. The poet Goethe called it the, the most beautiful short story in the world. So uh, read it with joy. And, uh, yeah. Will do. Mm-hmm. Okay, let me pray and uh, we'll let you guys go. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his death and resurrection. And Lord, for that glorious hope of acceptance in him by your grace through faith. We thank you also for his example. We thank you for the many snapshots we have in the gospels about how he loved sinners, how he was um, in the world but not of it, how, um, how Lord, he, how he spoke truth with boldness and love and gentleness and clarity. And so we pray we would learn from our Savior and pray for Uh, wisdom in proclaiming your word and in loving others. Lord, we pray for open doors, as Jerem talked about. Help us to see those open doors when they're there and to walk through them when they're open. Um, We pray, Lord, we would honor you, glorify your name in this world because of Jesus. He's our, our hope, our shepherd, our savior, our life. And so we pray in his name and look forward to meeting back tomorrow morning to meet in his name on the Lord's day as we celebrate his resurrection again. Give us rest and uh, encouragement this afternoon. Um, May it be so for your glory, Lord. Amen.